Yesterday, I spoke of using the categories of hours and not hours as a support to enable us to notice what we were attaching to, what we were, thoughts and feelings that we were entangling in. So I'd like to continue this today with some text from the sixth ancestor, Wei Neng, and then tomorrow with some text from Joko. In the Platform Sutra, the sixth ancestor says, What is meant by Zazen or Cao Chan? Cao Chan is seated Zen, seated, if you want to say, seated meditation. In this teaching, it means being without obstacles, without hindrance. What does it mean without obstacle, without hindrance? What are obstacles, hindrance? So he says, sitting means not giving rise to any thought in the mind externally in regard to whatever object. In other words, not holding to thoughts regarding external objects. Objects include physical, objects include mental. In other words, not holding to in regard to objects. And Chan, or Zen, means to see your nature without being disturbed, without perturbation, without becoming upset, without reaction. Seeing what's so without reaction. Reaction is, of course, the giving rise in mind. Friends in the good. This is the way the sixth ancestor often speaks in the, these, this text. This text is called the Platform Sutra because supposedly it's what was spoken from a platform where the sixth ancestor was sitting as the person who spoke the Dharma. In traditional terms, often when someone speaks, they're on a somewhat of a platform. So it's called the Platform Sutra. What is meant by Chan stillness? And if you remember... Still, 
silent was what I spoke of the first day. Chan means externally, means in terms of descripting, being free of characteristics. In other words, not holding to the characteristics that we attach and cling to about things, people, conditions, circumstances, thoughts, emotion thoughts about them. And stillness means being without confusion, not being troubled by reactions without confusions. In other words, the willingness to be the experiencing of this moment, the bodily experiential moment, rather than troubled, attached, clinging to our reactions. If one is attached to characteristics, the mind is confused. Or if you, sometimes you could say it, if externally one is attached to characteristics, internally the mind is confused. If one is not attached to external characteristics, the mind is not confused. Original nature, our original nature, is itself pure, is its of itself concentrated, concentrated meaning being present, being this moment. Confused it is only by objects seen and thought of. In other words, when we think about all sorts of so-called objects, so-called physical objects, so-called mental objects, so-called things that are should or shouldn't happen, ours and not ours, all these ways we become confused we become troubled. If the mind is not confused while seeing objects, that is true stillness. If we're not confused by the arising, passing of objects, physical, mental, all sorts of objects, then That itself is the experiential stillness of the present moment that is who we are. So, in a sense, friends in the good, the sixth ancestor says, Chan is being free of characteristic stillness means being without confusion. So being free of characteristics so-called outside and free of 
confusion, so-called inside. Externally Chan, internally stillness, that is Chan stillness. The Bodhisattva Samvara Sutra states, original nature is pure. Friends in the good, he says further. To see for oneself, to experience for oneself, thought moment by thought moment, the purity of one's original or true nature, this is accomplishing the way of Buddha. It's interesting, this thought moment, thought moment, it's the same as in the Enmejuku Kanon Gyo, we say thought moment, thought nen nen, jushin ki nen nen furishin. It's the same nen, except of course this is in Chinese, but the character thought moment, thought moment, which means each moment, each, call it each blip of this awareness life that we are. And I'm sure some of you are aware that in um, various sutras, descriptions of how many thought moments there are in a second, it comes to many, many thousands. And of course, some of you probably know that various so-called brain scans and brain sciences that we now have with computers, etc., have noted the many thousands of brain, what should I call it, flashes? No, that's not the right word. Anyway, blips of brain activity in a second that occur. This is what we're talking about, thought moment by thought moment. One's original pure nature, the purity of one's original nature is the accomplished way, is the way of Buddha Bodhisattva, being just this thought moment, we could say. It's not dependent on us doing it, but since the thought moment, thought moments occur, if we don't stick to characteristics attached to emotion thoughts about, then this stillness that we are, this freedom of confusion that we are, naturally manifests. See? This attaching, attaching to mind, attaching to characteristics is interesting because this is found in a number of different places in the 
writing in the platform sutra. See, I want to say writing of the sixth ancestor, but it's not the writing of the sixth ancestor. He delivered this, and this was written down by some of his disciples. Of course, there are historians and scholars who will argue, well, this was really written down later. We don't know for sure whether he uh, he delivered this or they put it together from his teaching or and there, there's much scholarship to explore that, but it doesn't make a difference because this text is considered a uh, fundamental text of Chan or Zen. You know Chan and Zen is the same word. Um, Chan is Chinese pronunciation of the character. Zen is the Japanese pronunciation of the same character and in Korean the same character is pronounced son and I might be pronouncing it not quite correct and in Vietnamese the same written character is pronounced tien but it's all the same it's this, in fact, it's the character up there that's Chan or Zen. Um, so. In a way, you could say Zen is simply another word for meditation, but it's not quite. Literally, its root is from the word meditation, and in part it's because of the Um, emphasis on seated meditation, zazen in the school. But meditation word in English has all sorts of connotations that are not, that weren't there in the words being used in China or Japan or Korea or Vietnam or so I prefer to translate it that accurately in, as Chan, which is what it is. We have this problem all the time, of course. Translating from one language to another, we get some of the connotations, but we add connotations and denotations from our own culture and therefore sometimes misconstrue. In a way, we could say, The whole of practice is to notice what connotations and denotations we add to our own arising, passing thoughts and experiences. In a way, the reactive habits, the samskara, which is the fourth of the five skandhas that we in in our translation of the Heart Sutra call discriminations, the habit mind habits or body-mind habits or emotion-thought habits that lead us to interpret reality in certain ways. Some of them we can so-called figure out where they come from and some of them we can't, but it makes no difference. It's the attaching 
That's the important. It's the attaching that creates obstacles and hindrances in our living our life, in our being present, in our hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, in our relating to each other, in relating to ourselves in the sense that it leads to all sorts of emotional reactions and misinterpretations. It leads to all kinds of suffering, or as this translation gives it, perturbations in our own nature, disturbances, troubling perturbations. That's a fancy word. But the struggle to translate 7th, 8th century texts from Chinese to actually not only from Chinese but from a spoken Chinese because this we have to know that much of the Zen texts that were translating were not written by classically, at least not originally, classically trained um, Chinese who spoke and followed the grammatical rules of Chinese writing, but were colloquial expressions, colloquial expressions often um, localized in various parts of China and localized in terms of certain times. And there are very different rules for writing, and um, in, at least in 8th, 9th, 10th century Chinese, between what's spoken and what's written. And um, we don't, that's for scholars to go into, but just to be aware of it. And now we're attempting to make what they're saying make sense for us in America, now in the 21st century, um, and make sense as practice. Make sense as practice, for what reason? In order to relieve suffering, in order to skillfully deal with what creates disturbance, harm, suffering in our life, so that we can cease to do what we always are. We can, no, cease to do what creates trouble so that we can be what we always are. See? This is when we say words like original nature is pure, but, or who we truly are is always the accomplished way. And yet, if we cover it over with greed and anger or believing those habits, then we get into all sorts of trouble. Or as the sixth ancestor says, it is only due to deluded thought that thusness is covered over. Thusness is a person's Nature, which is already originally pure. See? 
not clinging to these thoughts, our original nature, our always nature, our who and what we are and who and what everyone we encounter is, is pure. That's why I say you only meet Buddhas. You only meet Buddhas. Doesn't mean that they know that they are Buddhas. Doesn't mean that we know that they are Buddhas. And yet, it's so. Of course, as soon as we have ideas of what that is, then we're only creating more delusions and attachment ideas. Attachment is delusion. Attachment to all, anything and everything. That's why when we practice, our practice is to notice the thought, the emotion thoughts that we're holding on to, not to get rid of them, because if we think there's something to get rid of, then we're also in trouble. See, Not to create some sort of state when they're not, because then we think that there's certain characteristic that we figured out that is the better, the purity. As the sixth ancestor says, purity has no form or characteristic, yet some people postulate a characteristic of purity and say that is what, that is that toward which we should direct our efforts. People who hold such a view obstruct their own original nature and are in turn bound by this idea of purity. So, it's very simple, he says. When seeing people, don't see them or don't hold on to seeing them in terms of right or wrong or good or evil or their shortcomings. That's being the imperturbable that we are. See? If we talk about others that way, if we view others that way, then we know what we're doing is we are creating the basis of our suffering and our harming and their suffering and their harming. That's part of what, when we clarify what's ours and not ours, Then we obstruct ourselves from being who we are. Even if we create an idea of what being so-called non-attached is, that becomes another idea. We don't need to create ideas about what should or shouldn't arise. See, that becomes our problem. It's when entangling in what arises, that's why we say caught and holding in the four practice principles, because it's noticing that that enables us to allow 
this universe to arise as it does, including this universe of all the mental, emotional habits that we are, as well as all the so-called physical experiences that we are. I shouldn't say as well as, because that's part of the physical experiencing that we are. Okay. I'll stop here. Maybe we could talk a little about it because I've already spoken too much. Shoja. Hey, uh, you mentioned or, uh, the uh, what you were reading there talks about or at least mentions <clears throat> deluded thoughts. Yes. Are there such things as non-deluded thoughts? In a sense... It's not the thoughts that are deluded, it's our believing and clinging to them. So it's really what we do with them. If we believe them as the truth, rather than simply as thoughts that come and go, yes. There are non-deluded thoughts. But what happens is most of the way, most of the time we think about things, we think, first we think the thoughts are true, they're better or worse, and that they're permanent. So it's not just something that comes and goes. But thoughts, thinking, is just the same as salivating. It's just another process that being human, being embodied, we're subject to. If we only see the one-sidedness of thoughts instead of also seeing how they're simply manifestations, to use the word, of original nature, then thoughts just come and go. No problem with them. Then there's no thoughts anywhere because they're just coming and going. Then we tend to make thoughts into the equivalents and the basis of reality, then we don't see reality. Instead, we only are clouded by our thoughts, by our attachment to the thoughts. It's as if we're seeing through a screen of glasses, but they're all constantly speckled with dirt and dust, That's not a good image. Um, They're they're speckled, they have all sorts of different um, uh, disturbances in the glass. So we don't see things clearly, we see things distorted. And the disturbances are, I like it, I don't like it, it's good, it's bad. Uh, Self-centeredness is that uh, that yeah, as a generality, yes, but even more, it was. I, I was looking for where he 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 talked about it in in terms of seeing it in terms of right and wrong, shortcomings and strengths, lovely and ugly, liking and not liking. All those, when we see things through those, when we see thoughts through those with that that those hooks. 
then, then we turn our back on the way, so to speak. We miss who we are. See? Then we're attached to the mind without seeing that the mind is just a process. The thoughts and feelings are just a process caused by who knows what, just like the rest of the universe. It's just cause and effect. We don't have to know. But we say they're my thoughts, therefore they're the correct thoughts. I've worked it out. Therefore, on that basis, this is mine, and if he touches it, I should be angry at him. That's his, therefore I I shouldn't touch it. Or his is nice, and mine is not so nice. That's not so good. I'm unhappy about that. I should try to get his, or whatever. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm having a thought that one plus one equals two. Yes. Is that a deluded thought? I don't. It's a, as far you're the mathematician. I don't know any math. Are there are there <laughs> mathematical systems where one plus one doesn't equal two? Yes. Okay. Good. So if I'm in the mathematical... In the integers. (laughs) See, but we've already added... So there are all sorts of things. So, of course, if I want to make sure this light is on so that I could read here, I went and turned the light on. Now, if there was a problem with this electrical system or shortened the system, then despite the fact that I turned it on, it didn't go on. I could start becoming upset. Or if there's a timer in there that I don't know about... And all of a sudden, it goes off because it's timed, it's set to just stay on for 10 minutes. Then I've got a, a, a trouble when I go back and turn it on and it goes on and then goes off again. And I go, ah, it's keep going on and off and on and off. What's going on here? You know, this is so frustrating. It's so upsetting. You know, this thing's not working. So, Sure, one and one is two. And one and one is not two. And if I put one over zero, and I don't know what I get, or one over infinity, then I don't know what I get when I add one and one. That's a different kind of system. Yeah, I was trying to understand when Chodra asked, are there non-deluded thoughts? And it's not it the thoughts like that are deluded, it's our attaching to them and interpreting them that creates the delusion. Thoughts are just thoughts, they just come and go. Sometimes we could have a, in, 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 within five minutes, we could have a thought about how someone is great and someone is terrible and someone is a pain in the ass and someone is the most wonderful person and I love to be with them and etc. etc. We pick out from those. In fact, it's not just within a minute, within five minutes, within a minute we could have some, and of course we, the process of being human is we actually do pick out from, from the many, many thoughts that run through this so-called consciousness, we pick out some. There's a process by which we select some that we, and others that we don't notice or select. I mean, we know this very well because even just sitting down being still 
we all of a sudden notice all these thoughts, feelings that arise and pass, whereas most of the time we walk around and we don't even notice thoughts, feelings going on, the emotion thoughts. And this is even without so-called external input much of the time. We're just sitting still. There's, we're not seeing any things, and all of a sudden we've, there's the emotion thoughts about her and him and yesterday and tomorrow, and you know, and you can go on. So, yes, we use words and we generalize, but when we do, when we practice, when we're still present, then we, be, we we're able to sense more and more finely what's actually going on, because in the presence of the moment, there's the natural process not trying to figure it out, but naturally sensing what's so in all the different ways that sensing as being human goes on. We taste, we feel, we smell, we hear, and we notice thoughts. But sometimes the thoughts are so overwhelming, or I should say it differently, because we're often privilege our thoughts above everything else. We think they're the most important thing about being ourselves, about being present. We tend to entangle in them and focus on them. And in part of what our sitting is about is, in a sense, opening ourselves so that we can be a bigger container in which all sorts of processes, if I talk about it in that way, come and go, come and go. We feel we feel blood coursing through ourselves. We, we, sound comes and goes, light, color, etc. And bodily proprioceptive senses and all sorts of emotion thoughts. But when we cling on to them, then we're already entangling ourselves and getting in trouble. And that's what he's talking about in let's say this is the 8th century or 7th, 8th century in Chinese talking about that. That's what the Buddha was talking about a few days ago. That's what we'll talk about tomorrow. That's what Joko talk, will talk about tomorrow. See, I already know what tomorrow's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, does that clarify and plus, there's all sorts of thoughts that are wonderful thoughts. I mean, if I have to figure out how to fix this light because it's no longer working, I have to go into the wall and look at the electrical connections. That's all sorts of technical thinking. I have to clarify which are the wires, which is the ground, make sure that the fuse is off or the um, whatever so, so that I don't electrocute myself and uh, you know, all of that. And if I mix it up, I'll create a fire. Or who knows what I'll do. So maybe I need to consult with someone else who knows more about it than I do. Certainly if I was doing plumbing, I'd get someone else to to help. In a sense, in a sense, Zazen is becoming a technician of yourself, of your body-mind function. Not in the sense that you have to go fiddle, but in the sense of 
being present and starting to be aware and deepening the awareness of this process of being alive. Or, we'll say it even more, starting with the tip of the process of what creates stress, suffering, harming for you. And when we notice what creates stress, suffering, harming, then we get to notice where there's the clinging attachment and then where there's the ability to release that. And the entrance way in generality of releasing that is be, is the labeling and the being present, the experiencing, breathing, whatever way assists you and supports you in being this experiential life moment that you are. Not to get something else, but as the Sixth Ancestor quotes an earlier sutra, the original pure nature. My, your, our original pure nature. Original nature, pure not against impure, but pure in the sense as who we truly are, what the universe truly is manifesting as our life. We're just a manifestation of this universe. This universe of ongoing changing. And yet, we are the peace or the unchanging or the... Well, I don't want to go... I won't say anyway. We are this universe. I say too much, then everything I say is useless. Yeah. You mentioned uh, hindrance. You, you hindrance, you, yes. Yeah, so in the Heart, in the heart Sutra, you know, it, no hindrance, therefore no fear. Right. And it's interesting because in a way, to, have, to be no fear, you have to be, at least I, I have to be able to look at my hindrances, right, what you're talking about. Well, but actually you don't have no. to look at hindrances in order to be free of hindrances. You have to see the emptiness of conditions or the ongoing changing no because you get no hindrance, no fear. But what's before that? There's no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, etc. So the first is form is empty. Empty is form. Form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness is exactly form. See, it's seeing the emptiness of all the five conditions thus relieving suffering and pain. And everything else is sort of an elaboration of that. And then there's all, they enumerate each particular, all the various particular aspects of being human eye, ear, nose, hearing, smelling, you know, etc., etc. Till they come, because we see that all of those are just ongoing, changing emptiness, if I say it in such a simplified way, it's not that simplified, but then. There's no hindrance because no hind- because we cease attaching, clinging to them. We they te- cease to be troublesome for us. Therefore, no hindrance. Therefore, no fear. Because if we're not hindered by the arising, passing of the universe of conditions of circumstances, then. There's nothing to fear because we only fear things that might so-called hinder what we want or don't want. But if what we want and don't want are just more arising, passing, they're empty. 
of any fixedness, any selfness. Again, I'm explaining. But then we can just be without the fear, the added-on fear. That's what they're talking about. He's talking about. That's what we're talking about. That's being at peace. Being at peace in the midst of all sorts of changing conditions. But being at peace because we recognize that these changing conditions are things that people do. And we have to, in a sense, cease doing that greed, anger, and ignorance, that hatred and harming in order to be able to see that from the from the beginning we are that peace. Otherwise, yes, you're right. There is hindrances. There is fear because people do harmful things to each other. They do it because they're caught up in self-centeredness. They're caught up in my right, my wrong, his right, his wrong, her right, her, you know, etc. So again, does that make sense? Okay, Kim. Emotions and anxieties that come up as a result of biochemical stuff. Yes. Got a kid who's, um, you know, depressed occasionally. Right. Um, and I'm hitting menopause, so occasionally I get depressed. Yes. Um, and there's an expression that depression-wise, that thoughts come up. no basis in reality but are coming out of this biochemical so they do have a basis in reality see well, they right, but they're not you know you can look at them and go that's a silly idea it's not mm. but there's a yeah I, I wouldn't say it's a silly idea I would say no, no 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 I'm talking about oh shit the world might blow up that kind of silly yes idea. you know it's, it's you look at it in the surface it's like, right oh, whatever but there's a of physicality to the depression. Yes. What do you do with that? Yes. Well, let me let me go a different, get more specific. But for instance, I use, I, I in some ways I see zazen as a potential, um, call it healing form for PTSD. And when I say PTSD, let me let me PTSD is um, the result of misinterpreting reality sometimes based on a, 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 physical, a physical and psychological basis plus often based on past events. So, in, in a sense, there's a real basis for the fear and for the reaction because it's biochemical to an extent in the, in the same sense as you're describing biochemical, and yet the, the, the basis isn't here right now, and yet the fear and the fear reaction is, is there. And the crazy activity that results from that sometimes. I used to have a teacher who had gone through bombing in, during World War II, and every so often in class, something would set it off. I don't know whether it was a noise from outside 
and, or whatever, and all of a sudden he starts running back and forth. Bombs are coming, the Japanese are bombing, bombings are coming. Because he was in, in one of the Chinese cities where the, the, the bombings were occurring, in Shanghai, I think he was. Anyway, so he would run up and down the class, and then at some point all of a sudden would calm himself down and go back to teaching the class. Now, in one sense, there were, he was, what he was doing made perfect biological, emotional sense because it was, his, the, the, it was the memories in his body that were biochemically set off and, and he was just doing, acting that out. In another sense, you could say that's crazy because there's no, there's no bombing going on. But his way of perceiving was that there was bombing going on. In another, in a sense, we have all sorts of biochemical things going on, and all of us are different. Some of us have ones that quite, let, let's say, are, are out of touch with what's really a danger right now, but cause us to do things that create suffering for us and harming. And we sometimes need aids, whether it's biochemical or um, physical, to enable us to tolerate that and then to, if we could tolerate it enough, then we don't have to be overwhelmed by it, but we can test reality, so to speak, by being present and experiencing the reality, even with that other biochemical reaction, and not have to hold on to the depression. The depression can dissipate because we can tolerate the thoughts and feelings that otherwise be- would lead us to become depressed, suicidal, or even worse. Now, I, I, d- does that get to what you're asking about? Not quite. I think what I'm looking for is encouragement to stay still through the unpleasantness. Right. I don't have anything to give my kid. My kid, I say, go sit. The response is, no, too quiet. Okay. So so maybe with your kid, what you need to do is go walking. Because the... See, it's got to be what works for the person. So for her, it might at this time require that she... She can have a stillness in walking with you, in walking still with you in certain environments that are le- less, let's say, um, less setting off, less, you know, a, a quiet environment, walking down by the lake or in a park rather than in the middle of the street with 20 advertisements going on and people and, and you know, all the other things. So, you have to find what works, what is possible within the conditions of the person. Some people, it requires, in order to be able to do that, it requires a certain um, um, pharmaceutical help, which is another kind of aid. In other words, in order to be able to sit, we need to be able to have certain other um, things reduced or controlled so that then we can be present because otherwise it's too much it's too much for us to tolerate 
the internal stuff. Sometimes there are all sorts of aids that are, can be used skillfully. The, the question is, does one is one able to use them skillfully without having the various negative counter effects? In one sense, you can say sitting still is a is a aid. It's an aid to being present because we slow the body down, the body's physical reactions down so that we can tune in, so to speak, to what to ourself, to our life. To it doesn't mean you have to quiet the world down, so but so that you can be here with these inputs and not react constantly and not be moving which causes more reactions but it, not everyone can tolerate it and therefore you have to find what works for the person if you can't sit you can walk if you can't walk we, you could find other things like that see it, it's we each have our own environment, so to speak, called our body-mind, that we have to find in that environment what works for us. For some people, it might be chanting. They, They chant or read certain things out loud, and that enables them to slow down and be present and tolerate being present. There's, you have to really be in tune with what the person needs. So, some people can't sit still for a minute. Some people sit still and fall asleep. I won't tell you their name, but um, my uh, my wife's uncle um, was a professor of uh, zoology. Biology, zoology, um, and uh, he he practiced Zen. This was in the sixties, and many people, because there weren't many people teaching Zen then, many of his academic colleagues would sometimes come to him and ask him to to teach him um, how to sit, and and he, he had a sitting group, and he had he, had, he studied with some Zen teachers, So and Roshi. Maizumi Roshi, uh, people connected to yoga and Senzaki. This is back in the late 60s. Anyway, there was um, someone who was a biology professor, had heard about this and was interested. So he and his wife went over to um, Richard's house, and Richard said, Sure, I'll teach you how to sit. And, and they sat, they were there, and they started to learn to sit. But um, the wife, whether she wasn't interested or she was completely worn out from her work, fell asleep. And, the, the, and her husband learned to sit. And then, then they continued sitting. She eventually learned to sit, but the first time, times she was there, and there was, fell asleep. Fell asleep um, uh, uh, under the couch or under, uh, no, under the coffee table or next to the coffee table. So... Now, it just so happens this person is now a very famous Zen teacher. Um, But at that time, 
her body, mind condition wasn't able to even tolerate getting simple Zen instructions. So she fell asleep. Great. We have to know what's what what should I say, the basic parameters of what it takes for for this to work. But it might be that this doesn't work for everyone, therefore you have to adjust. I've told stories where so and Roshi made different practices for different people because of their physical and bi- and, and psychological conditions for, for them to learn how to practice being present. And we could talk more about that at another time. But, so, I've heard for very young children where someone would start their sitting practice by having them sit down and have five stones in front of them. And they would would take a stone, breathe in, and move the stone to the other side, and then go back to take the second stone and get the five stones to the other side and then go back and that and after they had done that breathing with moving the stones that would be the end of their sitting practice for the day and they would do that for a while and at some point they would do other things that worked for these children that's beginning zazen practice appropriate for age condition person I don't know if I've helped you, and if, if I haven't, we can talk more specifically. And if you want to ask, say something more, please do. In, in a sense, you could say Zazen is a technology. I shouldn't say it in such a way, but I'll say it anyway. A technology for being enabling us to be who we are. Enabling us to be this original purity that we are. Well, in a sense, you could say the Buddha's teaching is a technology to cease suffering and harming. It's a technology in terms of instructions and the means of the technology is our body-mind conditions. Primarily breath and experiencing. And there are other technologies available if those general technologies, general instructions don't work. There's other instructions more specific to the person. Some of you might know, I'll I'll end with this because I'm talking too much. There's a story uh, of a woman who was, who had a very young child, an infant child that died and she was disturbed. She was out of her mind in grief, running around screaming, yelling, crying, and she would go to every Brahmin and teacher that she could find and say, please bring my child back to life. You must have some miraculous powers. Bring my child back. And everyone said to her, you're crazy. Go away. Don't bother me. 
Then she went to the Buddha. Some say she went because someone sent her there and wanted to make trouble for the Buddha, but it doesn't make a difference which way we say it. She went to the Buddha and she said, please, bring back my life, bring back my child, bring back my child to life. You have to do it now. And the Buddha said, okay, I could do it. She says, oh, wonderful, wonderful. But, he says, you have to go get some seeds, some say it's sesame seeds, whatever, sesame seeds from a household where no one has ever died. So just go get that and bring those to me and I'll do it. So she said, oh, wonderful. So she went to one household in the in the uh, village and said, please give me some sesame seeds. Oh, yes, of course. And it it has, it has to be no one ever died from this house. He says, well, my mother died here. Okay. So she went to another household. And give me some, yes, 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 here's some. Sesame. Oh, my child died last month. And she goes to another household. And, oh, well, well, my wife died. And goes around and around all the village and all nearby villages. And, of course, as you realize, every, in every household, Someone died. And at some point, she came back to the Buddha and had, had greatly, was relieved of her distress. And she says, I went over, all over and looked and found that there is no household where no one died. And in a sense, that was the Buddha's teaching practice for her to help relieve her of her distress and suffering, and it said she laid, she then became a disciple of the Buddha and um, accomplished greatly. And there's even some verses connected to her in this in the uh, Pali Sutras. So that was a method appropriate to the person's truly deeply distressful circumstances couldn't have told a breathe, sit, meditation or anything like that and there was no theory involved till she got it for herself the nature of the fact that life includes death when we're born there's death in, in that but in the future at some point and how she was able to come to terms with that for herself through her own experience. That's what practice is. We just have to find what's appropriate. And in most basic terms, Zazen is appropriate for many of us. And there are all sorts of auxiliary supports that are possible. And that's part of what we individually can speak of. Okay. Thank you.